One, two, three, clap. Levels, levels, testing, testing. All right, I think we're good. Good? 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 good. good. Okay. Good. And while they're there, they received word that one of the prisoners had requested an interview. So they went to a large classroom where captured officers were sitting around playing cards and board games. Didn't make that up. They were literally playing cards and board games. And they met a man named Winston Churchill. Uh-oh. Oh, no. No. Yeah, yeah it's it's the, it's that Winston Churchill. It's, no. It's, it's, that, it's that baby-faced bastard. He was there. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, but our main host for the week, George. Say hi, George. I literally don't even know what day it is. I know. <laughs> Same here. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs' best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, what do you have for us today? Well, Aaron, at long last, I am fulfilling my sacred duty and continuing the story of Danae's Rates and the Boer War. It's about damn time! Thank you for that editorial comment. Yeah, yeah, I deserve <laughs> it. But one thing led to another. I mean, you, you know, you all know how it is in times of plague. Things just really, you know, you, you lose track of things and time and years and your own identity and stuff like that. Yeah, with the help of uh, Donald, you and Cameron, it's very easy to forget. Um, just where you are, who you are, and what you're doing. But I think because we're in, uh, I don't even, it's a, whatever, it's pandemic hours, I think we're just gonna let it slide this time. Uh, but with that being said, I think it's time to get started. Let's do it. What does a young man do in the early 20th century when he's already left his home, worn a cool hat, killed several men, watched his friends die, and eventually seen his homeland overrun? It turns out there's a lot of camping, riding around, camping, riding around some more, and then engaging in clandestine warfare against the government. Join us as we follow young Danae's rates through the Second Boer War. So, Aaron, if you had to choose the trigger phrase that would activate a legion of oblivious MK Ultra sleeper agents, what phrase would you use, and what media would you use to make sure the poor bastards would hear it? Well, um, let's see. As far as the phrase goes, I think, I think, uh, alone together, that's what I would do, so everyone would definitely hear it or see it on Twitter. And I would, the medium I would use, hmm, I mean, the internet, I don't know, uh, let's see. I think I'd put it in, like, a really funny, like, montage video that would go viral. It would just be, like, alone together, and it would just show a bunch of people on a Zoom call looking sad. Ooh, how about in, like, the YouTube Rewind or something? Yes. Or, like, in one of those online public classes that are just getting ravaged by trolls and students who know their teachers are teaching them bullshit. Um... Yeah, maybe I'd hijack a Zoom call and just say, 
alone together, you know what to do. And then all the Zoomers would be like, oh, right, take down the government. <laughs> well, uh, except, what about you? Except not because I, I don't think MK Ultra is implanting the plan of taking down the government and the people it torments. That's what the government wants you to think. I don't even, <laughs> this is a 60 underwater backgammon over here. Yeah. Uh, so what about you? If you had to choose a phrase to activate all the sleeper agents and kick off World War Three or whatever, um, what media would you use and what phrase would you devise? I think I think I'd probably use the uh, the song Oh No by Marina and the Diamonds, mostly because several years ago, uh, YouTube autoplay put that song on and I, w- I was not at my computer. I had my you know Bluetooth headphones on. And I swear to God, that song was stuck in my head for an entire year afterwards. Um, I've never heard it. Well, don't, don't. It'll, okay. you know what'll happen. It was literally stuck in my head for a year. And as for media, um, I think I might make it like the sound in a slot machine because, you know, after our tech totalitarian corporate oligarchy destroys all small businesses we're all just going to be herded into massive mega casinos and towering dystopian cities for entertainment uh i mean they can try (laughs) and they'll probably win with a lot of people so uh i i think i think i think it's time to stop talking about this depressing shit computer Please bring up Danae's rates from whatever far-flung cosmic partition the file has receded to after all these years. It has not been years. Uh, Yes, it has. Look how long it's taking the computer. It hasn't been that long. It's been like a a few weeks or months or whatever. I don't know where we are. We're unstuck in time, as Slaughterhouse-Five would have us believe. Um, But, you know, my proposition is that we go make some coffee while we wait for this thing to finally get the file up. (sighs) Well, cut. All right, it looks like we're in luck. I think it finally worked, but the uh, computer's going to need some work after it's still smoking. Really? Still? Even after all those government PSAs warning it about the dangers? I am absolutely shocked and appalled. I mean, we just... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very... Imagine my shock. I mean, we just have to change the oil in the computer after the episode, and it should be, like, you know, ready to go. Shh, we don't want them to know how it all works. Anyway, let's... let's Forget it. Let's get started. <laughs> I mean, I've got my coffee. The acrid scent of singing, uh, singed electronics fills the air. The weather's beautiful. Um, we're literally in a buried shipping container in a field right now that you somehow consider a <laughs> lab. How the hell do you even know what the weather is like? Um, I'm using my imagination. All those celebrities told me to imagine there's no heaven, so I did, and now I hate myself and I don't know why. I mean, because everybody should take the advice of thoroughly blackmailed and bought narcissistic agents of the CIA on the PRC, right? I mean, this is America. It's what we do these days, apparently. I knew this was a bad idea. Well, I imagine (laughs) we should get started on the actual episode. Finally. Okay. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. So, uh, as is our custom, we're uh, starting out with a picture again. I think you've already seen this picture, but uh, nonetheless, nonetheless, can you give us a brief description of our man Danae's rates here? And this is from around the time we'll be talking about today. I've described him before. He's got that that look of a man who will kill you, um, and then maybe... uh, feel bad about it later because he didn't want to, but he kind of had to because you were doing something so awful he couldn't let it stand. Like being British. uh, Like being British, of course. He's got a big hat, which is just, you know, very awesome, I guess. It's kind of the trademark. Big gun. 
Yeah, yeah, he's got a big gun, bunch of big rifle cartridges and a bandolier wrapped around his neck, and he looks like he's seen some shit. So there you go. I think he's also about 18 in that photo, which I'm pretty sure I didn't look like that at 18. And no, much, I looked like a baby still. Yeah, I think I had much, like, chubbier cheeks when I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's to go. Okay, so... Uh, I figured we should start with just a brief recap of what we've seen so far since, you know, it was sometime, sometime back in the late 70s that we did uh, the last installment <laughs> of this. So we should probably uh, give everyone a little bit of a refresher. So the Dutch settled the southern tip of Africa a really long ass time ago, um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it was very sparsely and pop- populated at the time. Uh, so they're able to kind of just move in and start farming and grazing cattle and, you know, the, the harmless activities that Dutch people do. And um, they're under the control of an outfit called the Dutch East India Company, which has control over this little colony on the Cape of Africa. And God only knows how, but the Dutch East India Company seems to have been even worse than the British East India Company. And mark this down, because this is one of the few times that you will hear me ranking something as worse than its British equivalent. Well, uh, I'll let you make the case at any point you like. I already made it in a couple episodes back. I didn't even notice, but that's fine, because I probably wasn't even paying... T- uh, never mind, just it, It's because it's you always on that phone. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so the terrible tyranny of this Dutch East India Company leads to lots of people striking out and leaving the settled colony on the coast and heading inland or along the other coast with their cattle and their wagons and living off the land and trying to just sort of get into a position where they don't have the company controlling them. But every time people get out of the control of the company and try to start new settlements, the company comes and takes over. So people just keep being pushed further and further away from the original colony on the Cape, and the company keeps expanding its tendrils after them. Then at last, the Dutch East India Company falls apart uh, shortly before 1800, and its holdings are nationalized, so the people get to be ruled by the actual Dutch government instead of the company, but almost instantly the colony gets conquered by the British in the Napoleonic Wars. So, you know, under new management. Yeah, um... (sighs) Yeah, so they finally got got back to their own governmental control, not this corporate bullshit, and then another corporation comes in and is like, Hey, <laughs> hey, you're ours now. <laughs> hey. So, uh, <laughs> the British, of course, picked up right where the old Dutch East India Company had left off in terms of how they were treating everyone, so the people continued to leave the colony and head inland and along the coast to found new settlements, only to get those settlements annexed by the British, either with some ridiculously contrived legal justification or simply because they marched in and said it was theirs now. And, you know, if they wanted to do it, they could do it because they're the British Empire, after all. Right. And they've got all the guns. (laughs) Yeah, you know, uh, confer here the entire Ireland series. Yep. (laughs) So this whole thing got much worse in the second half of the 19th century when things like gold and diamonds started being discovered in some of the inland areas that the Dutch settlers, who are called Boers, had settled. Now, in the 1850s, the British had decided that they'd chased the Dutch farmers far enough from Cape Town, and so they had legally recognized two Boer republics, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. He said, okay, 
we're we're done. You can have these little nations now. We've you know we've gobbled up as much as we want. But once there's gold and diamonds on the table, you know what's a little bit more imperialism? Am I right, fellas? I mean, <laughs> hey, gotta get that them golden diamonds yeah, I mean, for the, some such reason. British Empire is like, yeah, I was already in the neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> might as well just do a drive-by in the old borders. So, in the 1870s, the British decided that it just so happened that they also owned the Transvaal Republic, which is one of these two little Dutch republics. Um, this obviously had nothing to do with, you know, the natural resources like gold and diamonds that was there. Um Completely Obviously. unrelated. And a lot of yeah. Boers were really tired of the British and their crap, so we then got the First Boer War, which was an absolute disaster for the British. You can hear more about it in the last episode. And it's considered one of the biggest humiliations suffered by the British in the whole century. Like they, I support this. <laughs> yeah, they got written. It was embarrassing because it was like these are literally Dutch farmers. Um, they were not expecting a real war. But, as yep. they do, the British kept plotting, and they decided on a different method. They demanded that all the itinerant miners who had come to mine gold in the Transvaal, who, complete coincidence, by the way, were almost all mm. British, immediately be given full citizenship and voting rights in the Transvaal Republic. And, uh... That would basically instantly grant the British a huge and growing constituency to take over the country from within. If suddenly any British miner who goes to do some prospecting is a full citizen and gets to vote, you can see how that'd be really easy for the British to take over the government. Right, right, right. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> and the Boers said, uh, yeah, no, we're not going to do that because they, they knew what was going on. They saw the game. So officials mm -hmm. within the Cape Colony and the British military planned an attack from the border by mercenaries, which would coincide with a revolt among the British miners and take over the government. But there was a lot of miscommunication and confusion, and it all failed miserably. This was the Jameson Raid of 1895, which we talked about. It was a, it was a big embarrassment uh, to everyone involved. And the British government reluctantly jailed the British adventurers who were captured by the Boers, because the Boers sent them back to the British. And after all, they didn't want to, but they kind of had to, since they had to keep up the pretense that this was just some private crazy scheme that no one in the government knew about, because if they didn't, you know, jail these people for uh, attacking what they'd already legally recognized as a sovereign nation, it would kind of show everyone internationally what was going on, and it would be a lot of bad attention. Right. So they jailed them, but they didn't want to, and the British press hailed the men as, you know, heroes of the empire, blah, 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 because of course they <laughs> did, because it's the press and it's the British, and we're both very familiar with those topics. <laughs> yes, uh, disgusting. <laughs> But the uh, the presence of all those British miners still seemed like the best way forward. So the British government strengthened their uh, strong request about the miners to an ultimatum. Either give full citizenship and voting rights to the British miners, or else they would... Uh... Well, they didn't really say what else they would do. They said, do it or else there will be a... Uh situation developing and at the same time they start moving troops to the border of the Transvaal Republic so it's pretty clear what that situation was going to be yep. okay. 
And so the president of the Transvaal Republic responded with his own ultimatum, either withdraw the troops massed at the, bo at the border or the Boers, both the Transvaal Republic and the Orange Free State, which is the other little republic, would consider that all these troops on the border betokened that a state of war existed between the British Empire and the Boer Republics. Roger that. Yep. So with uh, with strong pressure being exerted by British companies who wanted to take over the natural resources of the region, and with the British press demanding action, the government rejected the ultimatum and did not withdraw the troops they had brought to the border. Ah, uh, the press demanding action. I know. <sighs> Who's heard of anything like this, right? Uh, the British people want their government to act, headline. You know, it's all you gotta do. It's like, that's how it works. If they want something or they have financial interest in something, all they have to do is make up a headline that says, 56% of British people demand action. President Van Stein has WMDs in Blomfontein. Yep. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yep. And so that, fellow kids, is how the Second Boer War got started. Um, our poll star that we've been following is, of course, Danae's rights. So we'll just give you the quick refresher on him. He's the son of the Secretary of State of the Transvaal Republic, and he illegally joined the army by sneaking aboard a troop train, albeit with the tacit approval of the president and the leading general of the republic. But still, it was not exactly by the book. Sure, but he did get approval from the president, so I mean, is it really illegal? It's, it's the lines the, are blurry these days. Like, is, it a, is anything a politician does illegal since they make the laws? No, they're, they're above the law. That's what I've figured. Haven't you been paying attention? Clearly. <laughs> so in the, in the prior episode, we followed Denise very closely uh, through the first week or so of the war. So if you haven't listened to that, that's where you'll get the real personal narrative picture of his wartime experiences based heavily on Denise's own memoirs. Um, but since that whole episode only got us like one week into a three-year war, we would be here a very, very long time if we continued that way. Uh, plus, you can also just read his book, which is called Commando, and get it right from him instead of being interpreted by us and defiled with stupid jokes. So <laughs> we're going to continue on from here, still following the path of Denae's, but with a little bit more bird's-eye view of the war. And um, yeah, this see, I wrote this like first, and this is more or less a complete lie because we really end up doing a lot more following of Denae's than I'd intended. But he's an interesting guy. I like him. Uh, so yeah, this is this is all lies. It's 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 still pretty pretty personal. But it, it gets a little bit of a bigger picture, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So the note we ended on was that last time was that the Boers had just caused a large British force of about ten thousand guarding the city of Ladysmith to break and rout, but that inexplicably, the Boer leaders had decided not to press the advantage and pursue them. Um, and there was some pithy Dutch proverb about when God reaches out a finger, don't grab his whole hand or something, which, I don't know, I'm not Protestant enough to understand it, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yep. And uh, in the course of, you know, pursuing them, had they done it, they would have taken the city, prevented the British from regrouping, and they would have been in a key in a position to seize a bunch of really key British points, which were not defended because 
the city was expected to hold. And so it was not pursuing them was an absolute just mistake. And we ended with a bit of a long reflection that Denise had about this. And I think that's a good place to start back up. So can you read this uh, this quote from Denise's memoirs, Aaron? Uh, in what voice? Do you have a Denise voice? Do you have a Boer voice? I don't know voice? what a South African... I mean, I know from the movie District 9 what South Africans yeah, but those. Are, yeah, but that's a lot more British influence. Like, this would be like a real Dutch South African. Well, technically a half Danish, half Dutch man. I don't know how to sound like a pastry. <laughs> okay, well, I'll just read it. I'll just read it. Read it in <clears throat> a genteel but bold voice. Hmm. Okay. With that lack of vision that marred most of our doings in the early stages, earlier stages, we hailed the Ladysmith battle as a great victory and acted as if we had broken and defeated, uh, as if we had a broken and defeated enemy before us. It certainly was a notable success, but in the end, it would have been better for us had the British smashed our line that day, for our leaders would then have followed a better plan of campaign than sitting down to a prolonged and ruinous siege. Had the Boers made for the coast, instead of tying up their horsemen around towns that were of no value to them, the outcome of the war might have been different, but they sacrificed their one great advantage of superior mobility and allowed the splendid guerrilla fighters to stagnate and demoralize them in the monotony of siege warfare at a time when our only salvation lay in pushing to the sea. Damn. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, he is writing this after, so with hindsight, um, about what it was, what was really going on at the at mm -hmm. the time one imagines he probably wasn't thinking wow this this is terrible after they did technically you know rout a british army mm -hmm. so at this point it's the beginning of november 1899 and british politicians and newspapers are saying and you may recognize this line from a a little shindig uh, about 15 years later um they were saying that the war would be over by Christmas. Oh my God! Have you have you heard Come that? On. Have you heard that one somewhere? That yeah, I might have heard that one uh, many many times in my reading of both world wars. Um, it really it's really interesting because I think it's a rhetorical um, tool. It's attaching, you know, um, a religious and widely celebrated holiday to the end of a thing that shouldn't have been happening in the first place. Um, it's this, it's a highly sentimental thing to say, the war will be over by Christmas, you know, America will open by the 4th of July, and it's like, what the f- Yep, okay, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop, my media, my media gears are turning. No, no, I was, I was hoping you would have something to, something to say about that, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah the war will be over by Christmas, it's bloody good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also might have to shave because somebody told me my mustache reminded them of Lord Kitchener, um, who will oh, no. who he only comes into it a little bit this episode, um, but we're gonna run into him again soon enough. He and needs he, to go back. And <laughs> wow, that was terrible. That was really that terrible. That was awful. I'm so sorry. <laughs> wow. Could, Hang on, I'm gonna put a beep in there. Actually, as, as long as you have that marked, um. It's it's not relevant yet uh, since we don't really get much in him, but uh, he gets blown up by the Ger by a German sea mine in World War One, and so it good riddance. <laughs> well, um, that's um, that's and nice to hear that the bill came. <laughs> no, it came, and the great the great thing is, um, 
that, uh, and you could cut all this out, but, um, he's actually, like, for years and years, he's being hunted by a Boer assassin whose, like, whole family was lost in the war and who's, like, following Lord Kitchener for literal years, um, and may have actually been on the boat when he w- when it was blown up. Um, oh my and survived, god! And survived. Yeah, no. There's there's a guy. We're probably gonna have to cover him later. But yeah, like this guy was like following Kitchener for years to kill him. Dude, you you've got to cover that one. Holy shit! Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Are we we're good. War over by Christmas. Hit. <laughs> After all, you know, why wouldn't the war be over quickly if these were just literally just farmers? Like, right. actually. And the because the fact is that uh, the only professional soldiers, in the sense that they were organized and trained and uniformed by the government, were the artillery units in the Boer army and some police who had been mobilized as troops. Those were the only actual professional soldiers in the mm. whole Boer army. Um Everyone else was just Boer men who had answered the call to arms and organized themselves into their local units called commandos by their town or neighborhood, and they elected their own officers and supplied much of their own equipment. So this was about as, uh, you know, irregular and informal an army as you could get. See, that's I love um, rebellious movements because they always start so scrappy. It's like... (laughs) Have you got a gun? Yes, all I have is this bolt action. That's fine. Put it together. Have you got a gun? I have a shot, a single shot break action shotgun. That's good. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, Maria can do the cooking tonight and then we can have, you know, like all this shit. Like, it's it's so interesting to read um, histories of, uh, I hate saying resistance fighters, but more rebellion fighters. And it's just like a bunch of buddies got together and they're like, are we going to take this? I'm like, nah. <laughs> yep. Yep. And although these men... Even though many of them were supplying their own equipment, they had pretty good weapons because the Boer leadership had, you know, known this was coming for a long time based on the, uh, you know, prior 50 years of history with the British. And so they had been importing lots and lots of German rifles and artillery, knowing that they were going to need it. So there were a lot of very good quality German weapons in their hands as well. Do you have any examples of these weapons? Out of curiosity, um, a lot of eighteen ninety three Mausers and uh, some eighteen ninety eight Mausers as well. The Gewehr, the Gewehr, what the Germans were using in World War One. There were a lot of those. Um, that was probably oh, okay. the probably the most common rifle that was equipped by the Boers, and those are very very good quality guns. I'm, I'm looking at one right now, three feet from me. Um, I was gonna say you have one of those, don't you? Yep. And so yeah, they. They may have been, you know, informal and irregular troops, but they weren't exactly, you know, just throwing rocks. That's good. <laughs> yep, yep. So the British, it seems, figured that this this whole thing would be as easy as most of the conflicts against non-regular troops, which they had fought over the past 50 years. They'd fire some volleys, they'd show off their big artillery, they'd march around a little bit, and then they would watch some poor tribal militia with spears run for their lives. That is what most of the British uh, successes had been over the past 50 years, especially in Africa. I'm aware of this. (sighs) Yep. So, the lack of vision, which Danae's laments in that uh, that quote above, and also a general lack of an ordered structure and military discipline, were the Boers' greatest weakness. 
In the weeks following the wasted victory outside Ladysmith, uh, the Supreme Commander, General Joubert, maintained a siege of the city. And in these conditions, where they were mostly just sitting around, the lack of military order became very apparent to Denise. He describes how everyone just kind of did their own thing. Some people even had their families come and join them. People were always just coming and going, like sort of going on tours, looking at other parts of the army, going on self-assigned leave to take care of business at home, traveling around. Like it's like people were just like, well, I'm going to give myself a week of leave. I'll be back. Like there was uh. there was no there was not a lot of sort of military order because these were sort of independent minded little local units who were all put together and so even though in theory there were office there was a command structure in reality it was very hard to actually maintain any kind of military discipline gotcha and okay. in addition um and part of this, proper measures for a siege were neglected. Very little attention was paid to communication systems across different parts of the lines, and there were very lax standards and sentry duty. Um, during the day, they didn't even post official sentries because there were always enough guys who just sat up on a rock and decided to take pot shots at any British soldiers they saw on the opposite uh fortifications and they didn't need to post sentries during the day they just depended on yeah enough guys are going to be just up sitting on rocks on their own shooting at the british that if anything happens you know someone will let us know that's a great way to spend an afternoon though is to sit on a rock and shoot at the british yeah, I, I mean try to knock goals. their little you know, their little helmets off their heads so yeah and this this last thing um uh, the lax standards resulted in the boers losing one of their valuable siege artillery pieces because british troops were able to discreetly approach at night close enough with a uh, or not at night but sort of it I think it was at dusk with a small howitzer that they pulled out with a horse. They were able to get it close enough that they were able to able to shell the artillery emplacement and destroy it because yeah you know, bad standards and sentry duty, and so did nobody saw them sneaking out. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's not a great regular army. Yep. So, um, yep. when an assault was ordered to be mounted against a British temporary fortification, which they'd erected at the edge of the city facing the Boer lines, and this is this is just another example of what we were just talking about, Denais and the other men in his corporalship, uh, the group led by C- Corporal Malherba, ended up pinned down behind a rock for 10 hours because when they got close enough to engage the British in the pre-dawn darkness, they found that most of the other units who had been part of the original advance had all at various points decided it wasn't worth the risk and turned around. And so you end up with just like 50 guys when they were supposed to be several hundred launching this assault. And so they obviously didn't have enough to actually launch the assault and they end up pinned down once the sun comes up and they have to sit behind a rock for 10 hours under fire before it gets uh, starts to get to dusk and they're able to flee. Wow, that sucks. Yeah, not, not great. Not great. Um, so the independence and decentralized decision-making, which are things which can be incredibly valuable in mobile columns of skirmishers and in, you know, irregular tactics were a huge liability in a siege situation. That makes sense. Yep. And during this time of mostly inactivity, Denise actually went home for a bit in order to testify against a man accused of stealing supplies that he had agreed to deliver to the front. So yeah, people are coming and going, uh, you know, even Denise 
coming and going, mm-hmm. goes home. But and this is this is fun. Um, while he was with his father, and remember, his father is the Secretary of State of the Transvaal Republic, so he's a, he's an important dude in the government. He visits the State School of Pretoria with his father while they're on a walk. Um, and that happened to be where captured British officers were being housed in the state school. Mm. And while they're there, they received word that one of the prisoners had requested an interview. So they went to a large classroom where captured officers were sitting around playing cards and board games. Didn't make that up. They were literally playing cards and board games. And they met a man named Winston Churchill. Uh-oh. Oh, no. No. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the it's that Winston Churchill. It's no. it's, it's that it's that baby-faced bastard. He was there. Ah, uh, this so, is before he was completely intolerable, I'm assuming. Yeah, well well maybe this is while he was was a reporter. Oh, okay, right. So maybe even worse. So oh, anyway, Ch- Churchill insisted that he didn't belong there since he was a British reporter, not a British military officer. So he shouldn't be, you know, imprisoned with these captured officers. Danae's father responded that since he had been caught sneaking around in the Boer Republic with a gun, his imprisonment as an enemy was legitimate. This okay. seems re- this seems reasonable to me. That but, sounds you know. reasonable. <laughs> Churchill then said that all the reporters in the Sudan where he had last been reporting had carried guns for protection, to which the elder writes angrily responded that whatever the case had been in the Sudan, the Boers were not accustomed to killing non-combatants, so the only reason he needed a gun is if he was up to no good. Yep. 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 So Churchill hmm. gave up with that, but he handed over several articles he had written and asked that if they didn't contain any, you know, dangerous or sensitive information, that they be sent off to England, and uh, the elder rates actually agreed to this, and they departed. And uh, he read that he did read the articles and found they were just boring. And so he he I believe <laughs> it doesn't it wasn't quite clear, but it seems that he did send them on. It's like yeah, there's nothing you know dangerous in in these, and uh, didn't matter. However, because soon after this, Churchill actually escaped from captivity. Ugh. Yep. I, that is a sentence I'll never like. Churchill escaped from captivity. <laughs> He's out of containment. Shut it down. <laughs> Locked. Lock everything up. He's on the loose. <laughs> He's gonna steal your champagne, your cigars, and start a war. Okay. Ah! But yeah, I thought I thought you would appreciate the little Churchill cameo we got there. Uh, yeah, I always like seeing cameos of the devil every now and then. Yep, reminds you of your own mortality and all that. Mm-hmm. So. You know, this was only, Denise was only gone for a couple days, and then he's back on the siege. So, around December 10th, Malherba's group was assigned the night sentry post at the Boer's siege gun on Surprise Hill. I do love the place <laughs> names around here. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, his corporal ship, along with another corporal ship, that was to guard the base of the hill. They're sort of on the flank of the hill, the other one's supposed to guard the base of the hill. Unfortunately, most of Malerba's men were already on a trip to the train depot to unload supplies, so it ends up being only 12, including Malerba and Denise, who went on the sentry duty. So yeah, this is just another bad organization. It's like, you know, most of this group is already doing something else, so this probably shouldn't be the group he was signed to guard something. Right. So, Mm. arriving at their assigned spot on the flank of the hill, two men started the first watch while the rest went to sleep, which is what they usually did with sentry duty. They'd have two guys stay up, everybody else sleeps. 
And uh, Danae's awoke a little bit before 1 a.m., which is when it was his going to be his turn to watch. But, and this was great, I sympathized with this so much, he figured it wasn't worth going back to sleep at that point. And, you know, we all know that. It's like, you see, it's like the <laughs> alarm's going to go off in 20 minutes. If yep, I sleep yep. now, I'll probably actually wake up more tired than if I just get up. Yep. <laughs> so he, he, lay, he lays awake for a while, and uh, eventually he starts to hear something. Something that sounds like the shuffle of shifty, stealthy steps nearby. So he goes to the two sentries who are awake, and they're also listening because they hear it too, and it's getting closer. So they assume it must be that other sentry group moving into a defensive position on top of the hill from the base where they had been for some reason. But then suddenly shouts and shots and screams came from the top of the hill and muzzle flashes lit up the night, followed by a huge explosion. Oh, God. So it turns out that British troops had crept up the hill and blown up the Boer siege cannon after bayoneting most of the sleeping artillerymen before opening fire after someone awoke and sounded the alarm. So, oh, God. Yeah, Malherba's group, including Danae's, moved forward to where they expected to find the other sentry group so they could join forces to ambush the British column when it returned to Ladysmith. But they couldn't find them. Oh. As it happens, the other group had simply withdrawn when they heard the British approaching and hadn't informed the other sentries or warned the artillery. They'd been like, oh, oh. looks like the British are coming and we're going to move back to a different position. So, yeah. Essentially, no system of communication between units. Very yeah. bad. Very mm -hmm. bad. So the gunshots and explosions had obviously been heard at the main Boer camp, but with zero communication and it being dark, officers were reluctant to send more men since they'd be just as likely to end up in a firefight with their own side. Since, you know, approaching in the dark, no one's going to know who's who. Right. So they're right. like, can't really just send men over there. Mm. Yeah. So, since most of his group had been getting supplies, Colonel Corporal Malerba had just 12 men. But they advanced to the to the rear of the British position, so between where the British were and where they were going to go back to, killing several sentries along the way. Um, at this time, the man right in front of Denae's, who was one of his tent mates, um, and who they were sort of moving over a little bit of a steep bit, and so Denae's actually had his hand on the man's shoulder to steady himself as they're climbing up this bit. And a British sentry who was in concealment shot the guy in the throat at point blank range. Oh, so Denae's literally has his hand on this guy's shoulder when he gets shot in the throat. And the oh. man was close enough that the, sh the muzzle flash of the shot caused his beard to catch fire. Jesus. And yeah, he dies soon after uh, while Denae's was helping him at his request turn onto his side. Um, he's he's very clearly badly injured, and he asks Denae's to help him turn onto his side, and Denae says that, you know, while he's turning him, he just suddenly sort of feels the life go out of him. My God. And what what became of the, the British guy? I mean, he was, like, right there in front of him. Uh, he scuffled off into the darkness. Oh, my God. Yep. So the remaining 11 men took up a covered position and ambushed the returning British, inflicting nearly 80 casualties on them as they tried to return to Ladysmith. At wow. dawn, Boer patrols went out to find out if anyone had survived and was surprised to, found, to find Malerba's group still in action. On the return hmm. to the camp, they actually found the bodies 
of several other members of their commando who had returned from gathering supplies and set out as soon as they realized that their uh, their command was in trouble. They'd been like, hell no, and they'd gone off into the darkness to go try to join them, and they had run right into the British in the dark and were killed, and their bodies had been bayoneted so many times that they were barely recognizable. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah, so that's not a pleasant thing to come across when you're heading back in. Hmm. So, yeah, this really shows, yeah, the best and the worst qualities of the Boer troops are on full display. Initiative, independence, and daring had allowed 11 men to inflict 80 casualties, but the entire situation would never have happened if there were better discipline, order, and communication, and they wouldn't have lost the siege gun. Yeah, um, it's becoming pretty clear that what they need is, <laughs> I, you know, it sounds like just better command. Um I don't know. Yep, yep. So what followed uh, was called by the British, especially the British press, Black Week. Oh, no. Between the uh, 10th and 17th of December, 1899, they suffered three decisive defeats in order. In each case, they had utilized, the British, that is, had utilized the same Napoleonic tactics, which were very effective in dispersing tribal armies with primitive weapons, but against the Boers with modern rifles and artillery, they were idiotic. (laughs) Just kind of, you know, marching at them. Um, Yeah. And the Supreme British commander in the whole, for the whole war front was um, Sir Redvers Buller. And yeah, he attempted to cross the Tugela River to relieve the Boer siege of Ladysmith. Because the Boers are sieging sort of a whole series of British cities. Because remember, they crossed over into the Natal, which had been where many of them were from before the British had just declared it was theirs several decades earlier. And so they, mm. after the war started, they had all, the Boer army had crossed into the Natal and was sieging a bunch of these British-held cities. And there's sort of a long, long line of Boer positions that encompass several of these sieges, and it's sort of all one continuous front. Mm. So the British realize if they can just break this line somewhere, they can more or less take care of the whole issue. Gotcha. So that's what Redvers Buller intended to do. I'm sorry. So Redvers Buller. <coughs> yeah, so Redvers Buller. Yeah, very proper. <laughs> so yes, good old, uh, good old Redvers Buller. So with almost no knowledge of the local terrain and very little reconnaissance, and relying on what they thought they were being told by a native scout who didn't speak English, the British attempted to cross the river in force. You can okay. probably tell this is not going to turn out great based on that prelude. Yeah, that, you did lead that in to set the British up for a for a little bit of a, a little bit of a party. <laughs> I, I I love that though that they're relying on a scout they can't actually talk to. <laughs> like you, they oh yeah they all they also have like a hand drawn map of the area on a napkin as well. How much did they pay that. for that? I wonder too. <laughs> Oh, it was drawn. It was drawn by a British officer who'd gone through the area previously, and he's like, "Yeah, I could draw you a map." So <laughs> I, I like to think it's like this there's like some funnier and funnier. stick figures representing the Boers. That <laughs> it's just like the literally the back of a napkin. <laughs> oh my god! Yep. <laughs> so they're ready to go, and uh, 
due to, you know, unforeseeable, who knows how this happened, but they end up at a different ford than the one that they had based the whole plan on, crossing. The one that was going to be the best position for them to cross. They end up at a completely different ford. Who could have seen this coming? And this ford was actually in sort of a loop of the river, so it's like there's a the river goes in a big loop-de-loop, and at the far end of the loop from the entrance to the loop is where the ford is. So they actually end up trying to cross here, and obviously crossing the river is kind of slow, so they're all packed into this loop. And they are thus exposed to fire on three sides, front and both sides from across the river, while they're trying to cross. Yeesh. Not a good position to be in. I was going to say, Not yeah, good- they're, they're a little bit... Uh- British don't rule these waves, let's just say that. Yeah, so um, after a humiliating withdrawal, they had suffered uh, 1,100 casualties to the Boers' 38. And of those 38, yeah, only eight of those were deaths. The other 30 were wounded. So, uh, yeah, this did not go very well, as Mm. you can imagine. It's like the Battle of the Crater. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've we've mentioned that before. Who? <laughs> yep. So good old Sir Redvers. Uh, pretty soon after this, is stripped of supreme command of the war front, and the British press uh nicknamed him Sir Reverse. <laughs> what goes around comes around, I guess. <laughs> it's, yeah, I found, it's it's just pretty amazing though. Like the, the moment the moment you uh you know you don't you don't do it right the the press just turns on you like yeah. he was he was very popular in england before cuz he'd been a you know a long time british general was you know hero of the empire and all that and then the mo- the moment you you fuck up the press is just ready to jump on you and so yeah sir I, redverse I, sir reverse classic, classic british press they're just like oh we knew all along he was dumb we knew yeah he was wrong the whole time and you know uh yeah, so now we're going to destroy his reputation for uh, clicks. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why, why would you ever have trusted this man? <laughs> Is it because we labeled him a hero before this? <laughs> you're so naive. I don't know what you're talking about. So, yeah. two other attempts at different parts of the Bora line had similar results. Um, so there were this is those three attempts were what encom- what encompassed Black Week, um, and they were not Sir Redvers because they they were different commanders in different parts of the front nearby though who had tried to break the Boer lines and ended up in very similar situations and with similar casualty ratios. <laughs> So, in the face of this, uh, the British knew they were going to have to implement new tactics. Um, So, they started figuring out how to improve. They vastly increased their uh, reliance on cavalry and skirmishers, and they started sending in a lot more men. And by the time this was over, the British military presence was over 400,000. Jeez. Yeah. Like, pretty quickly after this, they up the military presence, they get it up to 180,000 very quickly after this, and they just keep sending more, and, you know, a bit later on, we get up to over 400,000, maybe even closer to 450,000, it's hard to say. Yeah, wow, jeez, I I have no words for that, that would suck to have 400,000 British soldiers in your country. Yeah, and... The total Boer forces, you know, are in the tens of thousands. Like most mm. Boer armies are only, you know, five to eight thousand men. Gee, wow. Yeah. I mean, that ain't much, especially, you know, as far <laughs> if we're just counting on numbers. But now mm. the British are starting to realize that their tactics have got to be changed to match the um, 
the style of the Borers, it seems. Yep. So, before he gets removed from Supreme Command, but after he'd already gotten significant reinforcements, uh, many of them Canadian, actually. Mm. He gets he gets a bunch of Canadians because, you know, Canadians are as brainwashed as anyone else in the Empire, and so uh, you had t- thousands and thousands of Canadians volunteering to go fight in this war. Yeah, it's, it's kind Seen of amazing because almost ever basically all the nations in the Commonwealth are all super into this war. Like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they're all like people are volunteering to go fight the Boers. Basically, all the nations outside of the Commonwealth are super, super not into it, and the British are not seen in a favorable light by basically anyone else. And that shows in the fact that, like, the Boers had about 6,000 foreign volunteers from all over the world who'd come to fight the British with them. And then the other side has the propaganda arm of the British press uh, distributing propaganda against the Boers because they just want the golden diamonds, but they don't have the balls to say it. They just have to pretend like, this is an attack on your liberties in the British Empire. Like crazy shit. Yep, yep. No, and, um, the yeah, the British, of course, use all sorts of different propaganda, um, including a lot of, um, they use a lot of propaganda about the native populations um, hmm. because the British declared themselves in charge of native affairs in Africa. Like they literally they said, did. we're in charge of native affairs. And I can guarantee this was not out of any sort of a humanitarian, oh, we need to protect the natives. Because it is true that the British had, abo- you know, had abolished slavery and done these various things in the empire and were probably m- more of a closer to a modern uh, attitude than the Dutch who were still very much in a sort of, you know, old agricultural plantation type attitude and whatnot. But it's that the reason I haven't talked a lot about that is because it's very clear the British didn't actually care about the natives and it was all part of the, you know, their propaganda. And so, like, when they annexed the Natal, which was a functioning, you know, Boer Republic, they their justification was that, well, we're in charge of all the natives in Africa, and they're natives in the Natal Republic, so we need to run the Natal Republic. Yeah, it's all that very was backwards. Liter- I mean, that was literally what the their justification. Yeah, no, the, we're in charge of them, so we need to do, yeah, I mean, that that's a tale as old as time, is like, just say the opposite of what you're actually doing, and people will buy it, because they trust you, and then, you know, just do whatever you were planning on doing anyway, With just don't report it in the press. Uh, tale as old as time. It makes me sick every time I hear an, an account of this kind of thing. Yep. Yep. So anyway, um, Sir Reverse, uh, or Sir Red Rose Bullock, <laughs> uh, made another attempt to break through the Boer lines once he'd gotten reinforcements, because he knew if he could do that, he would break the siege of Ladysmith and several other cities, and the Boers probably wouldn't be able to sort of reassemble into a a new defensive line like they had at the moment. So news of the British massing new forces at the Tagola River, you know, near where they'd had that great defeat before, uh, led to the Boers um, drawing troops from the whole line uh to strengthen the position nearest the British. So they were taking, they were asking for volunteers from other positions to go reinforce the position nearest the British. And 
Danae's naturally volunteered because he seemed to always volunteer for whatever, along with the other uh, members of his of his corporalship. So Corporal Malherba and his friends. So they volunteered. And so they they end up down near in a point near the center of the whole Boer line around a hill called Spy on Cop. <laughs> I, yes, I'm pretty sure spy on cops. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's I'm, a joke. I'm, I'm amazed I hadn't even thought of that one. Wow. <laughs> Spy on cops. Anyway, yeah, you know, don't forget, you're legally allowed to record. Anyway, <laughs> so taking advantage of a thick fog at night, a British force crossed the river in secret, since there was no visibility, and seized Spy on Cop, driving off the small Boer garrison who raised the alarm in the camps around it as they, you know, fled down the hill. At dawn, the British realized that they had only occupied the lower portion of the hill and that the other end was higher and was still occupied by a Boer artillery battery. So Uh-oh. they immediately they immediately <laughs> begin digging in and fortifying up their position, hoping to hold this gap that they'd created in the Boer line. The Boers knew that from that position, the British could quickly storm several of their most important artillery positions opening up a gap in the middle of their whole line that the entire British force could pass through and just roll up the entire army. So spy on cop had to be retaken immediately. Gotcha. Yep. So just as Denae's and other reinforcements arrived at the foot of spy on cop, um, I can't remember exactly why, but he was, um, not traveling there with the other members of his corporal ship. They'd, gone separately i think he was delivering a message or something like that so anyway so they they're there before him so he gets there just as the assault had commenced and he could see hundreds of boers storming up the sides of the hill and closing with the british line which was holding the crest you know despite heavy casualties because when you're running up a hill at a defensive line you're going to take heavy casualties but after the boers sort of got to the top and crossed over onto the crest of the hill they were out of view and so no one knew what was going on up there and another wave which included Denae's, followed them up Oof. yep so on the way up he passed the body of several of his friends including two men from Malerba's corporalship two men who he had actually shared a tent with for weeks they were his tent mates in the camp mm. um i think there were a total of six people in a tent and uh All five people that he shared a tent with were all dead in the space of about two weeks. So reaching the top, uh, they joined the Boer lines behind what cover they could find. So, you know, using the natural terrain, using rocks like the Boers were accustomed to do. And what followed was 16 hours of constant rifle fire between the Boers behind natural cover and the British line that they'd constructed, which were only about 20 yards apart. And so 16 hours of constant shooting and mounting casualties. The sun, uh, yeah, the sun was beating down all day and they had no food or water either. Both sides were behind cover and refusing to move. Uh, The British had a shallow trench with a little rock wall they built in front of it that they were in. And the Boers were behind natural cover, as I said. And all day, either side would not move. Men were growing delirious from the heat and the constant explosions. The screams of the dying were filling the air. And everyone was tormented by the swarms of flies attracted by the pooling blood. 
And like oh, people, God, yeah, man. people are, people are just going crazy up there. Oh, Denae's uh, saw nearby him a German who had volunteered with the Boers. He had been an officer in the German military, but after a fight in a cafe in Berlin had led to his ki- him killing a civilian, he had been removed from his regiment and had sort of left Germany in self-imposed exile. Whoa, okay. And so he joins <laughs> the Boers, and um, Denae's watched him repeatedly stand out from cover to aim and fire as if he, you know, had no fear of death. He's just, like, standing up out of cover to take his shot, and Denae's like, what is this guy doing? And then finally, the German put down his rifle, and he's just a few feet from Denae's at this point. He lights up a cigarette, and he just stands up, slowly and thoughtfully smoking his cigarette as the bullets hissed all around him, until after several seconds, a round shot through his head, and his body fell at Denae's feet. What the hell? He just gave up? Yeah, I mean, I guess he, he'd he probably gone there with the intention to die after, uh, you know, being disgraced by being separated from his regiment, and he'd, you know, been fighting for hours and hours on this hill and just decided, you know, it, and he hadn't been shot every time he was get, leaving cover to, to engage the British, and he just decided, well, I'm done. And he just lights <laughs> up a cigarette and stands up. Shit, uh, that's pretty intense, I will say. Yeah, no, and you can imagine the psychological pressure they're all under, up on this hill, under the beating sun, with just blood and flies and explosions everywhere. Yeah, I mean, we're we're entering summer right now, and it's getting hot, and it's I'm not even in Texas, where it's already been 100 degrees a couple of times, and it's just like, imagine being in Africa. 16 hours under the beating sun, no food, no water, with bullets flying around, fly... I mean, it would drive you nuts. Yeah, yeah no, I can, like, I can like, see why. Like, actually, probably. Mm-hmm. Like, the, that, the poor German, I think his name was von Brusewitz, yeah, he, he may have just, like, mentally checked out and just literally lost his mind. And it wouldn't be surprising in a situation like that. No, but yeah, that's, that's a hell of an image, though, him just, like, putting down his rifle and just lighting up a cigarette... Yep. Oof. Yeah, no, it's... That was one of the vignettes that really sort of struck me in all this. I'm glad you included it. So, as the hours uh, wore on, men began to abandon the line and flee back down the hill. And, of course, you know, officers are trying to stop them. But as we've talked about, there's not a lot of military structure and order, and it's really hard for officers to actually get people to do something they don't want to do. And so, despite the best efforts of the officers, you know, more and more men are leaving the line. And finally, after 16 hours, the officers gave the order to withdraw, since so many of the men had already withdrawn on their own. The men who had remained the whole time wearily picked their way over bodies on the descent from the, from the hill to back to the Boer camp. And at the, uh, when they got to the camps at the base of the hill, it was not a, uh, it was not a happy atmosphere. A wave of demoralization swept over the Boer lines, and only the charismatic encouragement of General Botha, who had recently replaced the injured General Joubert as commander-in-chief, prevented a full dissolution of the lines. He spent all night riding from group to group, urging them to stand fast, and that probably prevented, like, just the whole line from kind of collapsing. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's, um... Yeah, you know, I think about morale a lot, especially, you know, during whatever the hell this crisis is um, here. 
And some days I just wake up and I'm like, what is the point of all of this? And some days I wake up and I'm like, I'm just going to keep going. And a lot of the times where I wake up and I feel like it's time to just keep, you know, keep on keeping on. You know, are days when I have focused on increasing morale um, and focused on just like finding encouraging things. And it's really amazing what a kind word can do for somebody who's, uh, you know, having having a little trouble. It's um, it is about morale. And even in the face of like a clear, you know, not I mean, not even like a clear defeat, but just like something so demoralizing as a battle like that, um, it would take somebody riding from camp or group to group. Um, all night long saying, we're gonna make it, we're gonna make it, we're gonna make it, to keep people from totally falling into despair and, and quitting. So, I think that's a pretty heroic move on General Botha, Botha? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, in the morning, it was actually found that just as the Boers finally withdrew from Spy on Cop, the British were doing the same thing. Because remember, they had also been doing that 16 hours, and they'd also been under British, under um, Boer artillery fire while doing it. And upon retaking the top, the Boers found that the British casualties had been far more severe than their own, and that the dead in the trenches were often stacked three deep. And Jeez. this is a... you. There's a lot I didn't get into the details, but um, the, the British here suffered from a lot of... Uh, Bad communication, bad command, you know, bad uh, command structure because the leader of the group had actually been killed pretty early on. And so no one was clearly in charge. And then when message a message was coming, you know, give it you know, pronouncing who was supposed to take over. The messenger actually got killed before he was able to give the message. He gets up to the British line and then gets shot before he can deliver his message of who's in charge. Wow. Well, and that so just then makes matters worse. Another messenger who happened to be Winston Churchill did make it with the message of who was to take over command. And uh, then presumably he leaves. But um, and then the British were also kind of unsure where their line was versus where the Boer line was. So they were unwilling to use their own artillery because they weren't quite sure if they were going to hit their men or the Boers. So there's just, there's, there's a lot of issues with the British in this as well, in terms of bad communication and just unclear because some, you know, somebody would think that an order had been given that they were supposed to withdraw, but then some, but then reinforcements would arrive and they'd be like, Oh, I guess we're not withdrawing. And it was just a whole mess, especially with it took how, with how long it took for them to establish who was in command because the messenger had gotten killed the first time. So it was just a mess. And yeah, their casualties were very severe. I think like four or five times worse than the Boers. And actually, I put a picture on here of the British fortification on Spy on Cop after the battle. If you want to just describe that for us, um, yeah, it's just a it's a very shallow trench, uh, fortified with rocks on the edges, and in between it just looks like a mass grave. It's literally filled with bodies. Yeah, it's just bodies as far as the eye can see, just stacked on top of each other. Sweet Jesus. Yeah, so it was, it was bad. Uh, it was very bad. Feel so, bad for the British soldiers. Yep. 
But things things were about to change because Lord Roberts was the new commander in chief, uh, replacing Sir Reverse, whom he left in charge of the re- of that particular part of the front at the Natal. And uh, Lord Roberts brought on Lord Kitchener as his chief of staff, who we mm. will get to know later, uh, and who is evil. But. Um, okay. <laughs> Yeah, Redvers had, in the meantime, made several more unsuccessful, uh, or at least one or two more unsuccessful attempts to break the Boer position, but he would basically made no arrangements for any military action outside of this one little area where he was commanding. Despite being the commander-in-chief of the whole war, he'd really only concerned himself with the front that he himself was leading, and just kind of let the war stagnate everywhere else, like... There were no real there were no real military actions happening outside of where he was directly present and in command, which isn't really what you want to do when you're you know the supreme commander of a whole war. You kind of right. want to have a bigger picture than what you yourself are doing. Right, right. Yeah, that sounds like a failure of uh, of duty. Hmm. Mm, yes, yes. So reverse is a traitor. He always reverse? has been. Per- the the press is gonna get him. Watch out. So, Roberts was not going to make the same mistake. He prosecuted the war across multiple fronts, which stretched the vastly outnumbered Boers even thinner. And after Mm. outflanking the Boers and making much increased use of cavalry, he finally broke the 124-day-long siege of the city of Kimberley on February 14th. And he pursued one of the larger Boer forces from Kimberley across the Orange Free State, finally surrounding them and capturing them after a nine-day battle. Mm. So this is like this is like I think almost almost two hundred miles from where these ba- these battles we just talked about took place. Like he actually mm. is like, okay, why don't we actually use this whole, you know, this whole front instead of just concentrating on the same place again and again. Yep, yep. It sounds like he's got a a wider view of what needs to be done than reverse. Yep. So while he's doing that, while Roberts is doing that, uh, reverse actually made his fourth and final attempt to relieve Ladysmith. This time, however, he adopted similar tactics to the Boers with small groups and coordinated advances from cover to cover. And despite suffering over 10 times the losses as they inflicted on the Boers, Redver's much, much larger army was able to dislodge General Botha and end the siege of Ladysmith. And that was, yeah, after similar, it was like 128 days or something like that. And so you have to remember, the Boers could literally have taken that city instantly because they'd routed the British army and the British army was retreating through it. They literally Mm. could have taken it, but they didn't. And they decided to just dig in for siege instead, you know, months and months earlier. Yeah, yeah, they should have taken the city. Lesson learned. Yep. Push to the so, sea. Before this last assault by General General or Sir Reverse, uh, Denays had left Corporal Malerba and the remainder of their Praetorian commando um, to visit a relative, I think it was his uncle, in a nearby commando. So just sort of down the road. And there was the understanding that if they if they received orders to move or something happened, you know, someone would come tell him that, you know, okay, we're moving so he could rejoin them. He's just going to, you know, hang out with his uncle um, just down the road. But no message had come. And riding back to his position, once it became clear the battle was coming, you know, they could see the British forming up. Uh, he's like, oh, shit, got to get back. 
but he could not find Malerba and his group. Uh, so he asked around and he heard from others which way they had departed and he followed. And he never did find out why he hadn't gotten a message, whether they just forgot to send one or if the messenger couldn't find him or whatever. But he ends up, he's separated from his group and he doesn't really know why. Huh, okay. Yep. So after uh, camping that night, uh, once it was dark, he found out from nearby units that the that the his, the rest of his commando had camped with them that night. So actually really close to where he was and that they'd mentioned which position they were going to take up in a place called Peter's Heights. But when Denae's arrived near the ridge, he could see that was it was under an, a sustained artillery bombardment, which was so intense that he couldn't see anything on the top of the ridge due to the amount of smoke and flying earth from the constant shells. He said it was the loudest noise he heard in his entire life. Coming to a Western Europe near you. <laughs> yeah, basically. So uh-huh. after a minute, he saw some figures on the ridge fighting. As the British charged up the opposite side against the Boers who had survived the artillery onslaught, but after a moment, the Boers began to flee down the hill, and Denae saw many of them fall to the rifles of the British who had taken the ridge. Hmm. British are so... They're not as merciful as the Boers, it seems. Yeah. So, he, um, you know, is among, looking among the men fleeing, trying to find his group. And he asks about them, and he and he realizes that not one of his corporalship had returned from Peter's Heights. Oh, um, survivors told him that they had been holding one of the most advanced positions on on the ridge and had ref- with refused to withdraw, holding the position to the last man until they were overrun by the onslaught and died every man to British bayonets. God. Well, I mean, mad respect. <laughs> yep. So that's uh that's you know Denae's unit has now literally ceased to exist except for him. Yep. So meanwhile, Robert's army continued its advance al- across the Orange Free State and soon captured the capital of Blomfontein. So with the Natal front broken, some of the Boers, including Denae's, had gone to the Orange Free State to try to form a new defensive line and halt Robert's advance towards the Transvaal Republic, but the tide of the war had turned, and all attempts to hold quickly crumbled, and the Boer armies just sort of started dissolving. God damn it. Yep. On May 28th, the Orange Free State was officially annexed by the British and renamed the Orange River Colony. Mm. Roberts then pushed inexorably into the Transvaal, uh, first taking Johannesburg and soon after approaching the capital, Praetoria. (sighs) The British are coming. (laughs) Yep. By this time, however, the government of the Transvaal Republic had long since left Praetoria in secret to the eastern part of the country um, because they they realized Praetoria was going to be taken. So they they moved the whole government out. Right. Makes sense. Earlier, uh, after it had become clear that the tide had uh, had turned, the leading government officials and generals had held a secret council where it was decided that the war could only effectively be carried out with guerrilla tactics. So finally, Ooh. they're they're facing facts. Mm, yes, the strategy of sieging cities and having sort of you know conventional battles had proved catastrophic in the long run and the boers simply did not have the numbers or the organization to meet the british empire in conventional warfare they're learning 
<laughs> yep. So on June 5th, Roberts entered Pretoria unopposed and formally annexed the Transvaal Republic, uh, declaring that the war was over. Oh, by Christmas. Way before Christmas. Well, no, because it was supposed to be Christmas the last year. Oh, oh but, but still before Christmas this year. <laughs> Technically, everything's before Christmas. Yeah, technically not wrong. <laughs> so, and then on June 12th, uh, Roberts forced General Botha's remaining uh, contingent to withdraw further away from Pretoria to the east. And after consolidating their hold on the area around the capital, Roberts moved against the eastern Transvaal where the government had set up. And on August 26th, the last formal battle of the war was fought at Bergendal. General Botha had made one last attempt to halt the British advance in order to shield the government, but outmanned and outgunned, they had been forced to withdraw, abandoning the last of the great 155 millimeter artillery guns that they had used during the war. So, uh, sad. It's over. End of an era. Nevertheless, the British casualties were substantially higher than theirs. And their main force had actually gotten away intact, and the government had been able to move again by train. So both the cons- general both the considered it to be a partial success. That's the right way to look at it. I mean, yep, <laughs> government's on a train. So. Yeah, and that's that's where it will remain. They're literally travel. They were literally travel around by train for ages, just moving every time the British approach. This is going to sound strange, but I was actually reading... You know I was reading this, but the listeners don't. I was reading a, a manual about uh, from the U.S. military about how to put down an insurgency. And basically, as if they, they've discovered that the best insurgencies essentially have a mobile government uh, that sort of just, like, rides around in, like, you know, a caravan or something like that and makes decisions, keeps avoiding main targets, but... Anyway, that's I thought that that is interesting that that's how it naturally occurred in this situation. Yep. And so among General Botha's troops uh, were none other than Denise. He's back. Yay. He oh. had uh, after the right. deaths, the deaths of all his corporalship, he had joined up with a new cavalry unit. And then when that had been dispersed after a battle with the British, he ended up uh, reuniting with his brothers, and they literally camped in their deserted house in British-occupied Pretoria. Like, because since the Boers are basically irregular, once they're not actually fighting, there's really no way to tell who's a soldier and who's not. Uh, Mm. That's going to become a problem later on in our next episode. Uh, The British are going to have a solution to it. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, a solution. But um, oh, so God. they just kind of stop, uh, stop looking like soldiers, and they literally camp in their in their in the house they'd grown up in in British occupied Pretoria, and eventually they join with a volunteer unit of Germans who prowled around Pretoria for several weeks, ambushing British patrols. Cue the IRA music. <laughs> yeah, but I I love it. It's just like sixty Germans who were all like, yeah, we want to fight the British, and they just. They'd just gone to Africa to fight the British, and they, they just sort of prowled around and the countryside and attacked the British. Well, I mean, I can think of worse things you could do. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, here, can you actually mark it here? Because I forgot to write down a little a brief quote from the memoirs, and I just want to find it really quick because it's funny. Oh. So, um, I actually wanted to read uh, Denise's little excerpt about this from the memoirs because it's pretty funny. About after he uh, joins up with the Germans. 
<laughs> so, Lord Roberts was resting his army around the capital, so we spent the next ten days skirmishing over the uneven country to watch his movements. We had several exciting encounters, in the course of which we lost five Germans, but it was an enjoyable time. <laughs> we lived on what we could forage, and what with scouting to within sight of Pretoria and raising alarms in the big camps, there was not a dull moment. Then the country got too hot to hold us, and we fell back 20 or 30 miles to where General Baltha was busy collecting as many men as he could gather. We found him halted near the old battlefield of Bronkhorstsbrut, where Colonel Ausruther's force was cut up in the War of 1880, which we talked about in the first Boer War episode. He lay by his saddle on the open veld. Save for a few dispatch riders and some pack horses, there was nothing to distinguish his headquarters from any other group of burghers dotted about. He had said he said we had done well and could now take a holiday, so we rode to a deserted farm some distance off and remained there quietly for some days. <laughs> I, I just love the, the nonchalant attitude that you know yeah, it's just like this pleasant like I like it I like it it was an enjoyable time, despite the fact that you know we lost five Germans. <laughs> it's okay, they they died doing what they loved, fighting the British. <laughs> Yep. So anyway, so uh. they, they eventually yeah, join up with General Baltha. And so after this last sort of formal battle of Bergendahl, President Kruger, who's the president of the Transvaal Republic, who was by now an old man and not in the best of health, departed into the neighboring Portuguese colony of East Africa. And from there, he took a boat to Holland. Uh, Gen mm. He died a couple years after this in Switzerland. But anyway, so he's he's out of the picture, um, especially because he's the president of a country that now doesn't exist. So, right. And he's not really a uh, you know, he's he's an old man. He's not really fit for military leadership anymore. Right. So General Botha held about 5000 men on the border because um, his main force had been able to stay intact after withdrawing from Bergendahl. So after destroying supplies and armaments that they couldn't carry, he led his men, including Denais, who had found himself in company again with parts of his original Praetorian commando north to begin a new phase of the war against the British, a phase which was going to take a very, very dark turn when the British realized the war, which they had so confidently declared was over, was only just beginning. Ugh. And, Oof. yep, and that's where we're gonna leave off for today, to keep keep this episode within a decent time but uh, we're, we're gonna come back and we're gonna, we're gonna do the, uh, the second and much, much more terrible part of the war and Denise's career after the war at a later time. Well, consider me interested in hearing the end of this story um, on the next episode. But I, I think uh, that was that was pretty interesting. I liked that a lot, and there was a lot of interesting. Like, uh, it's so funny when you when you look at stories throughout history. There's patterns. You can see patterns. Um, emerging in in uh in warfare especially and you know in a modern era it's interesting to see fronts where sort of modern combat tactics had to evolve beyond like oh we've got an official army to being like well now we're just a now we're we have an, a, an army but nobody knows where it is and we have a government but nobody knows where it is it's sort of like this these this interesting development and in, i don't even know what you call it is it like does it is there a name for this kind of warfare? Um, I think asymmetric warfare. Okay. 
Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And of course, speaking of patterns, there's also the, you know, perennial, the British or evil pattern, which oh, is yeah, going to become even more clear next time. Yeah, but at, at the same time, like, you got to feel bad for those British soldiers who who really just fell for the propaganda that old England was under attack by these mean farmers and, um, you know, enlisted out of a sense of patriotic duty, you know, and just not, there, you know... People at that level just don't typically connect the dots between, you know, gold and diamonds and uh, the war. They just go, oh, my government's under attack. My people are under attack. Time to join up. Um, yep. If we but if nowadays, we don't take the golden diamonds from those, you know, those farmers, we're going to be speaking Dutch in Lancashire. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the mentality. I get it. I get it. Um because uh, I grew up in a country where that is the mentality. It, yes, and uh, as I said, you know, General uh, President Van Stein has WMDs in Blomfontein. We have to have a war. Yep, it's the same shit, different day. But I think in the information age, that uh, that little um, that strategy works less and less. Um, but you know, so it, I think we're living in interesting times. Put it that way. Definitely. Who who was it who'd requested we do this this whole Danae's rates thing? Uh, it was, uh, Dylan, Dylan, right? that's right. Well, I, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sorry for the, the big delay in there, Dylan. Um, but don't worry. We press on, we bravely press on like, like Danae's rates and the Boers and we will get to the end of this story. I promise. <laughs> yeah. At, at long last, I think we'll finally bring this Ireland 2.0 series to, <laughs> to a good solid bookend, you know? See, if, this, this um, would be easier if we just still did what you guys used to do and have like eight hour episodes or whatever. <laughs> well, we found out that, uh, that, well, people listen to them, so I don't even know, I don't know what people want, but here we are. Um, but yeah, next week, or not next week, whenever we get it out at this point, you know, because I'm, you know, we're dealing with a global catastrophe, so that's nice. Anyway, I think uh, I think it's probably time to head to the surface of this real history lab and uh, close this out. Yep, yep. I'll uh, I'll get the ladder from the shipping container. So, Aaron, what have you been doing with yourself over these these past few weeks? Hope keeping busy. I hope. Yes, I've been very busy. I'm almost done with bu building my chicken coop. I prefer the word hen house for some reason, because coop just sounds weird. Um, been working on that, been uh, working on some landscaping projects, and, you know, I ate my first salad from our garden, completely grown on our own, which was super delicious. And, uh, yeah, been figuring out what I, who I want to cover next when we're done with South Africa. Um and the boars, but uh, other than that, just been eating into my savings and trying to get on un unemployment until I can find other gigs. So, what about you? What have you been doing for the past couple of weeks? Oh, uh, well, I am uh, working over the summer, uh, teaching over Zoom, which I have grown to despise almost as much as I despise the British Empire. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, Zoom, I'm just so, so tired of, of Zoom. But anyway, um, and other than that, just, you know, this and that, uh, fixing tractors, building stuff, you know, kind of, kind of the usual, but yeah, a lot, a lot of, yeah. a lot of work because somehow everything takes longer over zoom and a 
what would have been a 10 minute meeting in person becomes a 45 minute meeting when everyone's, you know, making sure their mic is on and then someone can't hear someone else. And then someone has like constant background noise that's distracting. And it's just, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. But you I know, mean, I've still got my tractors. And you've, you know, you're still working. I'm, I assume you're getting paid at least something. So, um, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just I'm getting so frustrated, and it's hot in this trailer, and I'm I'm baking. But before I start going on another anti-government rant, <laughs> hey, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com, or if Patreon is not your thing, which it seems to be less and less of a thing for a lot of content creators because they're so horrible. Just go ahead and drop us a little tip in Venmo, and our handle is at WTADP. I am now officially broke because I live in the People's Republic of Illinois, and they won't bring the jobs back, and the system is too overloaded to process the unemployment claims, so anything you give will be greatly appreciated and put to feeding my fucking face. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of that wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com and with all that being said we'll close out and let the sounds of british patriotism play you out <laughs>